Daily Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Monday, December 5th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. In South Africa, the Executive Committee of the ruling ANC meets today, Monday, to decide the future of President Cyril Ramaphosa. We should expect that uh, there will be a fight back within the ANC. The President had indicated that he is going to challenge the findings of the Parliamentary Committee. An agreement to form a new government is expected to be signed today in Sudan. Three days of national mourning for victims of M23 rebels and today Monday in the DRC. Malawi's Human Rights Defenders Coalition calls off this week's protest. Uganda introduces compulsory COVID-19 vaccinations. COVID-19 vaccination certificate will be required to, to access offices at all government ministries, departments and agencies. And despite a peace deal, grievances linger in the Ethiopia-Tigray conflict. Those stories plus something O'Malley's post are coming up on Daybreak Africa. South Africa, the executive committee of the ruling African National Congress, ANC, is expected to meet today, Monday. On the agenda is the likely impeachment of President Cyril Ramaphosa. And the independent parliamentary committee concluded that the president violated the constitution and engaged in corrupt practices in relation to thousands of U.S. dollars illegally hidden at his Palapala farm. Professor Sipo Sipe is a political analyst and former deputy vice chancellor for institutional support at the University of Zululand. He tells me South Africans should expect the president to fight back during the committee meeting. The president had indicated that he is going to challenge the findings of the parliamentary committee that looks at whether there is sufficient evidence to impeach him. And the issues that are related to impeachment have to do with what uh, first is the issue of him violating his oath of office. And uh, with regard to that matter, it has to do with the president not being engaged in any paid work. And the president had admitted on more than one occasion that he's a farmer and the money that was found and stolen from his farm was uh, as a result of uh, the sales or the proceeds from the sales. And in admitting, he was already violating one of the sections of the Constitution which requires a president and members of cabinet to be solely focused on the work of government. Obviously, based on what you said, the president violated the ANC constitution, is that correct? So why would there be a fight? You would think that there would be unanimous agreement for the president to step aside. eh? Yeah, you need to understand that the the ANC defines itself as a broad church, meaning that uh, within the ANC you have a number of people with multiple interests. This is one organization where you have some people who claim to be communists, some claim to be social democrats, some claim to be internationalists, some are nationalists and all that. And each grouping pursues its own interest. And those who want the president to continue belong to one of the camps. So the ANC, as it stands at the moment, is a divided party. And what Ramaphosa's presidency has done, he has been engaged in purging the other people. So now that he is in hot water, the people who are participating in the purging of others with him are the ones who are now worried 
that should he go, they will face the same music as they did to other people. What we are talking about has to do with the president's farm. So for the purpose of our listeners, could you summarize what the issue is with this Palapala farm? When a person is appointed to be a member of cabinet and also a president, the constitution of this country requires that you forego all your commercial and private interests, especially those uh, that have to do with business. So you tell the nation that uh, I'm assuming this position and all other issues that are of my interest, I'm going to pack them aside. And the president was always a business person. And uh, one of his business was uh, farming. And when he took over as a president, he claimed that he had uh, put all that business aside and put it in trust. But uh, after the theft, what emerged is that the president was somehow continuously engaged in the farming business, in the selling of uh, the special cattle from Uganda. So by engaging himself in selling, he was undermining a constitutional stipulation that one, a member of cabinet, must be focused on government work and nothing else. So that is the first. And the second issue with the constitution is that a member of cabinet should not place themselves in a situation where there is a conflict of interest between their responsibility in government and their private interest. Now, when money was stolen from the president's farm, the president showed a, a very peculiar interest, which also exposed that he had not stopped being engaged in the business that he had uh, put aside. But uh, to make matters worse, he also solicited the assistance of the president of Namibia, who the allegation or the story goes that the people who stole, they were Namibian citizens. So by asking a president of another country to assist them in the apprehension and or arresting of those people, he is accused of using his office as head of state to pursue private interest. Professor, thank you so much for your analysis. It's well appreciated. You're welcome. Professor Sipo Sipi is a political analyst and former deputy vice chancellor for institutional support at the University of Zululand. You are speaking with us from Johannesburg. In Sudan, an agreement is expected to be signed today, Monday, between the country's military rulers and a key civilian group, the Forces for Freedom and Change, or the FCC, to form a new government. There were protests over the weekend against the agreement. Reporter Michael Atit joins us now from the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. The framework agreement uh, expected to cover, uh, most importantly, the security and military reform within Sudan and the transitional justice to ensure that justice for the victims and survivors of uh, all the violations against the protesters is uh, accounted for. The agreement also expected to monitor the implementation of the Juba Peace Agreement that was signed between the transitional government and the an umbrella of armed groups in Juba. Uh, it will also continue the fight against the, you know, the Bashir's rooted elements within the institutions, including the military. And the agreement also will, you know, focus also on the economic reform in the country. The government that is supposed to come out of this agreement, what type of structure would they have or would it look like? Okay, the expected transitional government is is expected to be led by a civilian prime minister, uh, which is going to have a lot of power under his, 
ministerial position. And uh, he is also going to be the head of the intelligence. He is going to be the head of police. So the head of intelligence and the police are answerable to the prime minister. And uh, he is going to have a lot of power to implement a lot of programs. There will be also uh, legislative councils at the national level, at the state level, and at the local levels. And uh, it is notably that most of these posts are going to be filled by the resistance committees and representatives of other political parties who have been playing a lot of uh, move during the protests in the Sudan. Are there any opposing voices to this new agreement? And I'm also interested, do these voices include the Forces for Freedom and Change, or they are the ones signing the agreement? We have two groups of the Forces for Freedom and Change. Uh, One of them is identified as Central Committee, which is actually the main actor behind the agreement that is going to sign this morning with the military. And the other group, uh, which is also called Forces for Freedom and Change, a democratic bloc is the the main opposition group that is opposing this agreement of course with other groups with other groups such as resistance committees and all so they are seeing no fruit of the same FFC going to sit again with the same military who have been cracking on them on the streets, who have overthrew their legitimate government, who have... So they have a list of uh, why they are opposing this agreement. That was reporter Michael Atiti speaking with us from the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, three days of national mourning for people allegedly killed by M23 rebels conclude today Monday. The government says the M23 have killed more than 100 people in the east of the country. The rebels have denied they target civilians. Journalist Al Katanti Sibiti Jaffa joins us now from the eastern city of Goma. This national mourning is in memory of 109 civilians killed on December 1st in Kishishe, a city under control of M23. According to local population, this was because a day before, a group of local defense militia attacked M23 positions in Kishishe, and after chasing them out, M23 killed locals, accusing them to collaborate with Mai Mai groups and FDLR. Jaffa, has there been any reaction from M23 rebels uh, to government allegations that uh, the M23 was responsible for the killing of the uh, people? M23 didn't recognize the facts. Reacting on this accusation, the movement did a statement on the same day saying that all of this is a campaign of enemies of peace in order to tarnish the image of M23. And they said that FRDC, Congolese government, and some NGOs are working to tarnish this image by manipulating population in the zone they are controlling. And they say that their goal is not to target civilians, and they cannot target civilians, but they are fighting against FRDC and many negative forces like FDLR and Mai Mai groups. The allegation against the M23 comes at a time that there's peace negotiation going on between the rebels and the government. Do you think this might impact those negotiations? I think that this massacre 
will complicate the ongoing Nairobi peace talks. Because, you know, the Congolese government still recognize M23 as a terrorist group. And as now they have this massacre on their head, this will complicate. And one more thing is the Banyamulenge community, which was also part of the peace talks in Nairobi, they decided to leave Nairobi yesterday because of another massacre which was done against their communities in Minemwe. So the combination of all of this situation of insecurity, which place civilians as targets of militias, will complicate the peace talks in Nairobi. Our reporter Al Katanti, Sibiti Jaffa, speaking with us from Goma, the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Monday, December 5th. Still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley Sports. The government of Uganda has introduced mandatory COVID-19 vaccination for all citizens. President Yoweri Museveni has directed everyone to present a certificate of vaccination for COVID-19 to access a public office. Reporter Mugumi Davis-Rakarinji has more from Kampala. President Museveni issued a directive this weekend requiring all citizens above 18 years to get vaccinated against the COVID-19 virus. He says everyone must be vaccinated for COVID-19 to attend public meetings or gatherings. He says this is in a bid to prevent the further spread of the Omicron variant of COVID-19 that now has an infection rate of 15 cases per week. COVID-19 vaccination certificate will be required to access offices at all government ministries, departments and agencies. Don't come to the government office if you don't have the proof that you have been vaccinated. He says the elderly and people living with comorbidities must not only get vaccinated, but should also get booster shots. Only 59% of the legal population is fully vaccinated, according to Uganda's Ministry of Health. It says at least 26 million doses have so far been administered. He also says individuals with COVID-19 symptoms, such as the flu, will also not be allowed to attend public meetings and gatherings. Where there is no up-to-date vaccination certificate, a negative PCR test within 24 hours is required. Polymerase, spirulation, or PCR tests are considered to be reliable and accurate due to testing the specific genetic material of the virus, eliminating the interference from other viruses. About 170,000 people contracted COVID-19 in the country, leading to close to 4,000 deaths from the Wuhan, Delta, and Omicron variants since the first case was announced in the country in March 2020. Museven also commented on the recent attacks on security personnel and installations by the Islamic rebels of the Allied Democratic Forces, or ADF, and assured Ugandans everything is under control. I can assure you that these are empty-headed plans which involve criminals. Some of them may be linked to ADF, uh, trying to steal money and, and some guns. In other health news this week, Uganda's health minister, Ruth Jane Achieng, says the country is steadily overcoming the Ebola virus 
whose presence was detected in October. She said that there has not been any cases of the hemorrhagic fever in the country for the last 12 days. That means that Uganda will be declared Ebola-free by the 17th of December if there are no new cases. For VOA News, I am Ugume, Davis Rwakarindini Kampala, Uganda. The Malawi Human Rights Defenders Coalition, the HRDC, says it has suspended its December 7th protest intended to pressure President Lashra Chakwera's government to address social and economic problems in the country. HRDC Interim Vice National Chairperson Michael Kayasa tells me that the protest is being called off for now because the president has met some of the group's demands. But he said the HRDC still wants the president to fire those cabinet ministers and other government officials who, the president says, are sabotaging his administration. The reason why we have postponed or suspended the demonstration is that the government has addressed most of the issues that we have presented. For example, the issue of um, the fuel crisis that the country has been facing over the last month. That problem has been addressed, and we don't see the reason why we should proceed with the demos. There was also another issue to do with the affordable input program. That issue has been addressed because fertilizer is now available. We had also asked the government to fire the acting chief executive officer for the National Oil Capital of Malawi, Nogma, and this has been done. So looking at the demands that we had made to the government, we are satisfied with the, the steps that government has taken to address the same. One of the reasons you were planning to demonstrate is the fuel shortage. Is this realistic? Because the fuel shortage is a global problem, and I don't think uh, President Chakwera has control over it. It's true that uh, the fuel shortage is a global problem. But what you have to know is that the countries are responding to this crisis in different ways. If you look at Malawi, for example, and compare with the countries in the region, like Zambia, Tanzania, or Mozambique, you'll see that our response has not been as good as we would have wanted. And that's why, you know, we've been on government's neck to say, I think there's need for government to show more seriousness. You can actually see that part of the problem is because of the ongoing angling overpricing between the MERA, which is the Malawi Energy Regulatory Authority, and the NOKMA. And um, this wrangling is, is affecting our imports of this uh, vital commodity. You also want President Chakwera to fire incompetent uh, government ministers and other officials who you say are trying to sabotage the government. Do you know more about that or the president should know more about his cabinet? The president has uh, said it himself. He has said it publicly that he knows that he has some officers that are incompetent, that are underperforming. He has even mentioned that he knows that there are some cabinet ministers who are working to sabotage his his government. So this is not something that is coming from us. It's something that even the president has said it himself. The challenges are there, that we have some ministers that are there, not because of their expertise or ability to take this country forward, but because of political connections. And these are the ministers, you know, that are undermining government performance. So what we're asking the president to do is simply do the right thing, fire them, and bring on board people that will help him to achieve the agenda that he has set for Malawians. Thank you so much again, sir. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I do appreciate it. Okay, thanks for calling me. Michael Kayasa is the interim vice national chairperson of the Malawi Human Rights Defenders Coalition. You are speaking with me from the capital, Lilongwe. A 
It's time now for Daybreak Africa's posting here is something O'Malley in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Monday morning to you, something. Good Monday morning to you too, James. We begin the sport in Qatar, where African champions, the Taranga Lions of Senegal, capitulated on Sunday night in their second round match against England at the ongoing FIFA World Cup in Qatar. England surged to a comfortable 3-0 victory over Senegal as goals by Jordan Henderson, Harry Kane and Bukayo Saka swept them into a mouth-watering World Cup quarterfinal clash with holders France. The victory extended England's all-time unbeaten run against African teams to 21 games, including eight in World Cups. Morocco, who faced Spain on Tuesday, are now the only African team left in the tournament. In athletics, Kenya Kelvin Kiptum and Ethiopian Amane Beruso won the Valencia Marathon and became the third fastest man and woman in history. Kiptum, a 23-year-old in his marathon debut, won the men's race in 2 hours, 1 minute, 53 seconds. The only men to ever run faster over 26.2 miles are legends Kenyan elite Kipchoge in 2 hours, 1 minute, 9 seconds and Ethiopian Kenenisa Bikele in 2 hours, 1 minute, 41 seconds. In the women's category, Beriso, a 31-year-old whose personal best was 2 hours, 20 minutes, 48 seconds from January 2016, stunned the women's field on Sunday by running 2 hours, 14 minutes, 58 seconds. The only women to have run faster are Kenya's Bridget Kosge and Ruth Chibnedicic. And now to basketball, where Madagascar men and Egypt's women on Sunday won the FIBA 3x3 Afghan Cup 2022 in Cairo, Egypt. 3x3 Africa Cup 2017 bronze medalist Madagascar won gold this time, defeating host and 2019 winners Egypt in the title game 20 to 17 points. In the women's competition, Egypt won their second straight 3x3 Africa Cup title and also second overall, defeating Madagascar in the final. As 3x3 Africa Cup 2022 winners, both Madagascar men and Egypt's women clinched their title to the FIBA 3x3 World Cup 2023, which will take place in Austria in Vienna, while Egypt's men and Madagascar's women as runners-up booked their tickets to the FIBA 3x3 World Cup 2023 qualifier in Israel. The 7th edition of the Afghan Amateur Individual Chess Competition, hosted by Kenya, ended on Sunday at the Mobasa Continental Resort in Kenya. Chess Kenya President Bernard Wanjala said the championship attracted a total of 93 players from 15 federations, the highest attendance in the event since its inception in 2015 in Matola, Mozambique. It has been quite challenging uh, for us as the host. It was an opportunity to test the progress we have made in the juniors. As you can see, majority of the players that we fielded were the juniors. And they have uh, played quite uh, satisfactory. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a good Monday. And that's it for this Monday, December 5th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for beginning your week with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barton, Washington, wishing you will have a great week. 
Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash Sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America. VOA brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music from bubble music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, afrobeat to ndombolo and makosa to kwaito. The African beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 0905 and 2005 UTC right after the international news. 